Hi, Jim Wilson here. This is the NGB Ideas podcast, where we discuss the personal journeys of leaders, innovators, and disruptors in the Canadian life sciences community. This podcast is brought to you by LabOccupier.com, and it's in support of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit, that takes place in Hamilton on the first Monday in October. This episode was recorded in March 2023, and one of the major obstacles for many biotech companies in Canada at the moment is simply finding lab space in which to grow. It's not a regional problem, it's a national problem. And our guest today, Sabrina Fiorellino, CEO of Faro International, is leading a team that is helping solve that problem. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Sabrina, thanks so much for joining us today. I appreciate you making the time for this conversation. So let's jump in. Both of your parents are Italian and your father emigrated from Italy to Canada. And you were born in Mount Sinai in downtown Toronto, correct? Correct. And shortly after you were born, unfortunately, your father left the scene. And I cannot imagine how difficult that must have been on your mom, you know, raising two kids as a single mother. For me, I think when I was young, I didn't fully appreciate how hard it must have been for her. You're young, and so there's things you just don't understand at that time. And when I look back and I think about what her experience was as a single mom and the career she had, I can't imagine doing that, especially in that period of time. What we were lucky about is that we had an extended household. And so it wasn't just my mom in the house with us. We were lucky to have other family there. So I'm sure that helped. Where did you grow up? So very stereotypically, I grew up in Vaughan. There was a ton of Italians there and still are. But it was great because a sense of community where maybe my immediate family didn't feel the same as everyone else's, but the community was there around me. Oh, that's great. I understand you've got a brother who's a doctor. Is he older or younger than you? So he's an anesthesiologist. He's 14 months younger than me, but everyone thinks he's older than me. And there's just the two of you? Just the two of us. So small family. Where did you go to high school? So I went to high school very typically, again, at Roman Catholic High School, Father Brazzani, and spent quite a few years there. Any teams, clubs? So I did play on quite a few teams. I played volleyball, basketball, soccer, rugby. And in fact, when I graduated, I won the award for excellence in academics and athletics. I love sports. I love them. I still love them. I'm probably a fanatic a little bit. I would say that's one of the areas in my life I miss the most. I understand that your mother was an entrepreneur in residential construction, which raised an eyebrow in a good way. What exactly did she do? So my mom basically acted as a GC on some very, very large, I would say high-end homes. So 30,000 square feet, 28,000 square feet. 30,000 square feet homes? Yes. And so she often did start to finish. So she hired all the subcontractors, managed the sites. And I go back to what I said in the beginning. I think about her as a female in construction at the time that she was doing it. And I can't imagine what it was like because I look at what my journey is like as a female in traditional male industries, and it's still very difficult. And so I can't imagine how it was 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Wow. How did she get into that? I have no idea. I think 
architecture and therein lies how she got into it. And so I think she just loved it and wanted to do it. But she wasn't too happy when I followed her path. That's for sure. You've said that you and your brother are against the statistical probability of where you should be. You beat the odds. What do you mean by that? And to what do you attribute that success? I look at the statistical probabilities of children of single mothers and how they do. And the statistics aren't good. Generally, their career points aren't great. Their outcomes aren't great. And so I look at my brother and I, and so I'm a a lawyer by background. My brother's a doctor. Both of us have been, I would say, very successful in our careers in different ways. And so I think that's odd. But what I attribute it to is having a strong family unit. So my mom was a single mom. She was working, but we lived with my grandparents and my great-grandparents. And so there was always somebody monitoring our behavior so we couldn't get too out of line. And I think that made the big difference. How many people were under one roof? Seven people under one roof. I can't say it was a small house. It wasn't. There was lots of room for all of us, but it doesn't matter. Seven people under one roof is still crowded when it comes right down to it. That makes for a busy dinner. You were particularly close to your grandfather, weren't you? I was. My grandfather was probably the closest person to me for a good chunk of my life. He drove me to every sporting event I had. Sometimes he would stay up at night with me doing homework, and he would often say that he knows more than anybody else about law and medicine because he would read mine, my brother's textbooks. While I was working, he'd fall asleep on the chair just to keep us company to make sure that we were okay. So just a kind, kind soul, kind man. I have to admit I'm a bit jealous that you had that close relationship with your grandfather because I didn't know my grandparents. They passed away when I was very young. What were some of the lessons that your grandfather taught you? When he passed away, I did his eulogy. And one of the things that stuck out to me about him was that he put family above all else. Family was most important to him. And he was kind and generous, even when those around him weren't that way. And so for me, a lot of people say I'm very much like him in my personality, in the way I conduct myself. And so I think his personality, kindness, generosity, love of family, definitely rubbed off on me. He also instilled a work ethic and loyalty to employer and that some would say are old-fashioned values, but I'm thinking that there's a lot of value in everything that he passed along and some of it we need to bring back. I completely agree. So, So my grandfather was the type that would say to us, you don't stay home from work unless you're really, really sick. You go to work. You have to be loyal to your employer. They put food on your table. It's important to do your job, go above and beyond. And he was that type of employee. He worked very hard, often worked three jobs at the same time. And so definitely that inspired me, I think, to work as hard as I do today. There's a corollary to it that happy to be loyal as long as the company's loyal to me kind of thing and treats me fairly. What a great great upbringing. You started your first company when you were 18 years old. And if I understand correctly, it was a global distribution business that was connected to your mother's construction business. So we distributed high-end furniture. So I started the business with my mom. We would import furniture from Italy and France and distribute it in North America. And you were 18. 18 when I started, the furniture that we distributed was part of the high brand fashion. So think Fendi Furniture as an example. And so we started with one brand. 
I really wanted to expand to other brands. So we were at a trade show in New York and one of the other brands was at a booth across from us. And I said, oh, mom, we should distribute for that brand too. And she said, what are you going to do? Go ask a president? And I said, yeah, I am. <laughs> and sure enough, we ended up distributing for them. I look at that in retrospect and think, would I have done that today? I'm not so sure, but I had a lot of guts when I was very young. And so I think that served me well at that time. I think I was cutting lawns when I was 18. <laughs> you were doing quite well in this business, and I'm assuming you're thinking, hey, this is working out pretty well. And then you pulled you aside at one point and said, yeah, no, you're going to go get an education what was behind that conversation? There was no room for negotiation. For her, me and my brother had to go to post-secondary school. Even my grandfather would get involved in that conversation and say, we didn't come here and work so hard for you not to have the best education you can. And so you better figure it out. We don't care what you're doing or how you're doing it. You're going to go to school. And so both of us did. So the trips to New York were put on the wayside and he went to... York University in Toronto, you started in 2001, and in 2005, you completed a BA in political science, law, and society. Now, I'm familiar with the political science part, but I'm not so much familiar with the law and society end of it. So I'd appreciate you taking a few moments to explain what that degree is all about. Okay, Jim, you're asking me to go way back here. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it was a law-like course, not law as I understand it today. I always had an interest in law, I would say probably from when I was young, and it helped propel me to want to go to law school more than what I originally wanted to do when I started. I think when I started, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do economics. I love math, which is unusual for a lawyer, so economics or my MBA or going to politics and I've been in and out with politics over the years and then law and so I couldn't really decide so I think the law and society stream helped push me in that direction. I understand you also took a children's literature class at university that seems like a bit of a departure what was the motivation there? It was an elective. I had to fill electives. I'd heard the class was good. I love to read at that age. Now I'm not so sure I love to read as much because all I do is read and write all day or did for years and years. I think I just wanted something different, heard it was good, and decided to take it. Now you also took a legal class during your undergraduate degree that was a joint classroom between Toronto and a city in Nigeria. Could you tell us a bit about that? That, I would say, was one of the best experiences I had. It was a virtual classroom, so all the students in Nigeria could see all of us. And the professor from Nigeria and our professor taught the class jointly. And so it was an amazing experience to see how law and culture interact in different places globally. And I loved it. It's one of the standouts for me. You also took a course on the Middle East. What was it about that course that resonated with you? So I think that course was called War and Peace in the Middle East. When that course started, there was a lot of animosity between a lot of students in the class. And I think the professor did a very, very good job of having different sides of the conversation express their views on how they were feeling or why and express how history has impacted people's views or their version of history or what's been reported and not reported. And I would say by the end of the class, what was fascinating to me is that everybody was much calmer than when they started. So that was a very interesting experience. 
That must have been a fabulous experience and good on that prof. In university, you also got into Harry Potter. What was it about the series that hooked you? One of the books we had to read in children's lit was Harry Potter. It was the first time I was reading it. So lucky enough, it just was around the time it came out, was around the time I was taking the children's lit course. So it was very, very popular then. I started reading the book and I think it was Rowling's ability to write so descriptively that you almost felt like you were living that moment that hooked me in the book. What was university like for you? Did you live on campus? Did you continue your athletics in university? Unfortunately not. I worked, I volunteered, lived at home, commuted. So it was about seven minute drive from where we lived with my grandparents at the time. I would say I loved my undergrad. I loved the academic experience of undergrad. I didn't get a great social experience because I was commuting, but the academic experience was phenomenal. So you, at some point, made the decision to go to law school. It sounds like you made that decision prior to getting into university. And you attended Osgood Law School at York University from 2005 to 2008. Why that school? Did you consider others? What was it about Osgood that drew you there? For sure, one of the top three law schools in the country. And so that was a driving factor, I think. Selfishly, I was already familiar with the campus. It was near my house. So as you might know, Osgood's on New York's campus. So I did seven years on the same campus. Maybe would have been better to go somewhere else just to have diversity and experience. But I think Osgood as a school was very different than York and also culturally different in some ways. And so I think it was a great experience either way. Was law school more difficult or less difficult than your undergraduate degree? From an academic perspective, it wasn't more difficult, but I found it more regulated. So in undergrad, I could write whatever I wanted, however I wanted, if we had essay assignments, etc. In law school, exams and assignments were very fact pattern based. So here are the facts, answer the question. And so I found it very rigid and funny enough, I use the analogy, in-the-box thinking, which I am not an in-the-box thinker, a little bit less enjoyable experience from an academic perspective. While at school, in June 2006, you started articling at Castles, Brock, and Blackwell, and Castles is a major law firm in downtown Toronto. You stayed there until 2012, and you strike me as a very creative person. What was it like working at one of Canada's premier law firms? The team who I worked with was excellent to work with. We had former premiers there at the firm who I got to interact with from various political parties. We had some top lawyers who worked for some of the biggest businesses in the country. And so those experiences were invaluable. I also got to do a little bit of fashion law, which I loved, a little bit of sports law, which I loved. I get the feeling that from day one, you knew that law was more a means to an end than career. At what point did you have that realization? I knew right away. I knew that it wasn't for life for me. I think it was very difficult going from being an entrepreneur to being a lawyer. So no restrictions to obviously a lot of restrictions and rightly so. And I thought, nope, got to go back. But I stayed for quite a long time. And I would say it was one of the most valuable experiences of my life because law touches every aspect of business. And I can't emphasize that enough. And doing corporate law, so mergers and acquisitions and corporate commercial, it helps me so much in my day-to-day business today. 
that is something I would recommend no matter what to anybody who wanted to do business. I made a move from a global real estate firm to a regional firm. And in my experience, it was getting a breath of fresh air. And it sounds like your experience was similar. After your tenure at Castles, you moved to a boutique firm, Gilbert's, that focuses on IP, life sciences, tech, and Aboriginal law. Why that firm? Why did you make that move? At the time I got an offer, I couldn't refuse. And so I took it. Part of it was to create their corporate commercial practice. And so I did move over and, and started doing corporate commercial law there. It was hard, though, because I was used to having a very big team and I only had me. You were at Gilbert's for just over two years and then you went to an even smaller firm. Why did you make that move? So at that time, I needed flexibility. Both my mom and my grandfather got sick very close to the same time. And I decided in my grandfather's footsteps, that family needed to come above all else. And so I needed to have better balance to attend to some of the things that they were going through. We'd like to take a moment to remind our listeners, this podcast is brought to you by LabOccupier.com, and it's part of Next Great Big Ideas, Canada's Life Sciences Innovation Summit in support of McMaster Children's Hospital. This event is taking place in Hamilton the first Monday in October, and you can find details at nextgreatbigideas.com. So you were two years at that firm, and then you became in-house general counsel at Pizzaville. Now hearing what you've just said, I was wondering if that was to get more experience in a different field or if, if there was something else behind it. It sounds like it was a combination perhaps of the two. I needed the flexibility. As I'm sure you know, working at a big Bay Street law firm is 24-7 job. And so it's really hard when you need some time. Now, that being said, a lot of the firms are accommodating, but I really needed as much flexibility as possible. Understandable. At the same time, for lack of a better term, you parked your shingle at Axiom, which if I understand correctly, is kind of a gun-for-hire law firm where you remain to this day, correct? Correct. So I stay on their roster. It is a global firm, I believe, at this point. And so the nice thing about Axiom is they can ask you what your availability is. You can say none, and that's okay. They can ask you if you want to work part-time, full-time, ad hoc, etc. And it's totally up to you. And so for me, it's a great experience or great alternative for someone who doesn't want to work full-time but wants to practice law. I'm looking forward to the next piece of our conversation because it really intrigued me. Some of the people I've interviewed on this podcast have pivoted in their educational and professional careers. And you did as well, but you went from pizza to paving. <laughs> and uh, that's, a, that's a different kind of pivot. Could you tell us a bit about that? As you know, I've always been entrepreneurial. So my background, I would say, was more on the mergers and acquisitions side and doing the startup at 18 with my mom was a different kind of startup. It's more of a traditional, slow-moving startup. It, because of my background experience, how many industries I had worked in or worked for, there was some people who asked me if I would consider doing acquisition consolidation in paving or concrete. And so I thought, oh, okay, this is a great idea. I can do this, no problem. What I realized very quickly is acquisition consolidation in this industry is extremely difficult. People, the valuations were 
very high at the time. The market was high. And so my original ideas of buying low, taking the company public high, you know, with a spread in the EBITDA margin didn't quite work the way I wanted. And so the same group was working with asked, oh, would you do a startup? And so my initial position was, no, it's too capital intensive, takes too long to make money back. I would never do that. And sure enough, I ended up doing it. So this company was Viola Alliance, which is a mid-tier construction firm based in Markham, Ontario. Looking back on this part of, I think, what was an intentional path, it was allowing you to get exposure to various aspects of business. Was there an ulterior motive as well to the path that you were taking? At the time, I didn't think so. I would say it was... A very crazy experience. So the company did 80 million in its first year in operations and eight zero million. And we hired 80 people in three months. So it was a very fast scale up. But my grandfather, one of his jobs way back, he owned a small paving company. And now in retrospect, when I look at it, I hadn't made the connection at the time I started, but it became very clear to me after that I'm sure that was part of my inspiration for doing it. So you were at uh, Viola for four years, and it sounds like that was a very interesting experience and one that you enjoyed. So I enjoyed the experience of leading a company from nothing to something. And so that was a really great experience. Hard industry, again, being a female in paying, but it helped me grow both personally and professionally. I assume being a woman in the construction industry, and especially being a CEO, would be a tough assignment at the best of times. Very challenging. Something came out from Women of Influence recently called the Tallest Poppy Study, and it talks about successful women and how they feel, and maybe not treated the best when they're successful. And so in that industry, you can imagine it's highly male-dominated. Almost all the employees are men. Almost all the CEOs are men. Almost all the inspectors are men. Almost all the city officials who deal with those contracts are men. And so you're going in right in the middle of that. So there's different treatment from different people. I would say some people were really kind and supportive, and some were maybe more old school in their thought process. I think that's a polite way to put it. What is it that you're most proud of while you were in that position? I would say resilience, again, very difficult, as I'm sure you can imagine, just never giving up and continuing to push forward and continuing to drive the company forward, no matter what happened. And so while you were exiting Viola, COVID hit, and you started a new company, Faro International. I'd like to do a deep dive here, but before we do, I will mention that I am a fan of your company, what you're doing. And I've been trying to help generate some business leads for you because you're in life sciences and I'm in life sciences and we're talking with the same people. And some of the people I'm talking to should be talking to you. What is the backstory to Faro International? Where did you get the idea? Thank you for your support with the company. So COVID hit and it affected my family in a particular way. So I had mentioned that my grandfather, my mom had health issues. So my mom is a double lung transplant recipient. And my grandfather actually passed away during COVID. And it was the first time I couldn't stay in the hospital with him. So obviously devastating to me that he passed away without me there. My brother's also, I mentioned, an anesthetist. So he was treating COVID patients. My sister-in-law is a nurse, but she was home because they had a six-month-old. And so that family dynamic, I think, was 
different than a lot of other families because there was complex health issues, there was healthcare providers. And so the combination of everything made me take a step back and look at the healthcare system and say, oh, healthcare is broken. I'm going to fix it. Obviously a little bit too ambitious, but I thought I have to do something. I can't do anything. Like I'm not working. I need to come up with something to do here. And so as a normal person would do, and I'm being sarcastic here, I built an ICU. I didn't really think, oh, I'm going to stand up a whole business around this. When I started, I thought, okay, I will just build this and see if it can be helpful. Maybe I'll donate it. Maybe I'll inspire other people to do the same. So that's really where the idea started. And exactly what is it you're building? Today, we build modular infrastructure, primarily healthcare infrastructure. So we will build modular hospitals, modular let's say surgical backlog centers, operating rooms, intensive care units, ward rooms, emergency departments, dialysis, also laboratories, which I know is what you're interested in, and modular long-term care, diagnostics. And then I would say we can apply to different sectors. So we can apply to traditional hospitals, but we can also deliver product for war-torn regions like Ukraine or natural disaster hit regions like Turkey, or for the military that's traditionally used tents as hospitals, which proved ineffective during COVID. So lots of different applications, also healthcare applications to mining sites where you have remote care, healthcare facilities for remote communities like indigenous communities, lots of different ways. So these boxes are freestanding HVACs in, like it, it's a turnkey operation that you could drop in the middle of nowhere from a helicopter or on the side of a highway from the back of a truck. And you're up and running in minutes. In no time. Yeah. So I would say depending on the size and scale. So we do build to building code if the application is required. And I would say we build the facilities almost turnkey. And so the install time is significantly reduced once they get on site. Now, if we're building 20,000 square feet, obviously foundation work is required and, you know, it's a little bit more involved. But if it's a smaller facility, it can go together quite quickly. And the delivery time is a fraction of the traditional construction period. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. The slogan of Faro International is solutions without limits. What does that mean? So for me, I've always believed there's no limits. I'm a big Disney fan, which maybe is a bit unusual, but that's how we entertained ourselves when we were young watching Disney. And one of the things that Walt said was, if you can dream it, you can do it. And I'm a full believer in that. And so we believe that there's no limits to what Pharaoh can do. And we're, I think, living proof of that every day. You're based in Hamilton. What's been the biggest challenge to establishing this company? I would say healthcare innovation and the acceptance of healthcare innovation in very traditional environments. Canada, I would say, is on the conservative side of innovation, especially in healthcare space. I hear often that Health Canada is one of the hardest areas to get innovation through. So if you get your medical device approved in the US or in Europe, you still might not get it approved in Canada. And so I think the acceptance of new innovation in healthcare here was probably one of the more difficult things to go through. I would suggest that we're great at innovating, we're terrible at commercializing and adopting, but it's getting better. Yep. Are you restricted geographically to where your products can go? It sounds like they could go anywhere. They could go anywhere, absolutely. So we can put them on truck, on rail, on ship, and distribute globally. 
Where are they designed and built? Designed and built in Hamilton or southwestern Ontario. So we're pretty excited about that. Getting funding when you're a startup is often difficult at the best of times, and you've been looking for funding. What's been that financial journey like? Are there any details you can share? So we do have a lead investor. So Leuna and Bengi are lead investor, uh, and we're very grateful for that. I will say 3% of venture money goes to females. Again, you know, we're winning against all odds. I would say. And we recently got some additional money, which you'll see a press release about soon. So we're excited about that. And I would say as a small Canadian company, especially female-led, we are extremely successful on the fundraising side in comparison to most. Now, that being said, we still always need to raise more money. We're a startup that's growing at a rapid pace. And so in order to scale, we need to feed the beast. You've said that resilience and humility are skills that are required at all times. They're 100% necessary. You've also said the other thing you need in business is to have a thick skin. Care to elaborate? I would say resilience, why? I think entrepreneurs are told more no than they're told yes. And so you need to be able to accept those no's and push through them and keep going forward no matter how many times you are told no. I think Michael Jordan says a quote, and I I won't get it right about missing 10,000 shots, but getting the game-winning shot in. And that's the reality of success. You're going to get no, 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 and eventually you'll break through. So I think that's why resilience is necessary. I think Humility is always necessary. I think there's not much more that, you know, I'll say about being humble. I think it's very important and it keeps you grounded and working as hard as you can at all times. And having a thick skin, I think, goes part and part with humility and resilience. So you have to have a thick skin in order to get through all the no's that you're told over and over again. Polite persistence. Sounds like commercial real estate. What do you like most about your current position? I think I love my team. My team inspires me. My team is phenomenal. I think it's the first time in my career that I actually got to hand pick my own executive management team. And they are fantastic. We all have the same thought process, the same resilience, the same drive, the same work ethic. So working with this team has been phenomenal. What's been the most difficult obstacle you've encountered in your professional career and how did you overcome it? So I would say perception of me has been very difficult. And maybe that's just related to being a female in male-dominated industries. So often someone will see you and maybe not perceive you as an equal or as competent even. So it's just getting over those humps. What I've learned over the years is I use it to my advantage. If someone sees me or I can tell that they think I'm not competent or they're treating me in a way that's different than how they're treating everybody else in the room, I use it to my own advantage. It's like playing poker. You play the game, so to speak. What's been your biggest win and what did it teach you? So my biggest win, I would say, is learning that I could do anything I put my mind to. So I wouldn't attribute it to one event. It's been the constant wins that have happened over the years and the fact that I've had successful businesses over the years, successful legal careers over the years. I think what it taught me, and I go back to what I said before, is that there are no limits. You have to believe in yourself, but you also have to put in the work. And if you do both of those things, you can be successful no matter what. 
I would agree with that 100%. Pharaoh is how old now? Three years. Have you reached the point where you can clearly see that you are on the right path, or are you still taking tentative steps down that path? I would say absolutely. I think, you know, we started selling, we raised money, started hiring. And so when that occurred, I think we knew we had something. There's something real here. We know that we're going to be great. Our CFO always says she was part of a great Canadian growth story and she wants to be part of another great Canadian growth story. And I do believe that Farrah will be a great Canadian growth story. I look forward to reading the front page of the Globe and Mail about that very item. What's the best advice you've received in your career, personally or, or professionally? I would say ignore the noise that happens all around you. So obviously you hear negative things, you hear positive things, you hear different people's opinions, but the best advice would be focus on the mission. My mission is to make the company successful. It's to give my shareholders a return on their investment. It's to make sure my employees are happy and the customers are happy. And I focus on that mission. And there's lots of things around that can distract me from that mission but I ignore those things and I focus on what's most important. Is that the advice you would give to perhaps some listeners who might just be starting out in their career, especially young women? Absolutely. And I would say patience, patience and resilience. And I look back at me when I was starting my career, I would say I was probably spicier than was required. So I would say that probably wasn't necessary. Patience is important. Resilience is important, though I need to be super spicy. <laughs> what does the future hold for Faro? Where will Faro International be in five or 10 years? We'd love to be a global company distributing all over the globe. I'd love to have manufacturing on every continent at some point. Now, you know that the markets aren't very good, but at some point, I think me and Maria, Faro's CFO, would love to take the company public, partially because we'd be the first female CEO and CFO to take their company public in manufacturing in Canada. And so for me, that's extremely important because it paves the way for other women to do the same. Wow. I look forward to that. What is it you're most proud of? I think it's my resilience, that I've never given up, that despite odds always being against me in so many ways from birth to today, and I've managed to make it. And you know, I'm not the biggest and I'm not the best, but I've done everything I could to achieve things against all odds. Last question. What's the next great big idea on your horizon? For sure, Pharaoh. Everything Pharaoh. We're involved in white paper on this 3.5 million square foot shortage on wet lab space. And so I think Pharaoh can really impact in the wet lab space market by building modular labs really quickly to decrease that wet lab space shortage. And I think for me, that's the next big, great idea where we want to be. Thank you so much for this. It has been a pleasure getting to know you a bit better. Thank you so much, Jim. I really, really appreciate you having me on. That was Sabrina Fiorellino, CEO of Faro International in Hamilton. To learn more about the team at Faro, please go to FaroIntl, that's F-E-R-O-I-N-T-L, Com. We'll finish today's podcast with a reminder that it's part of Next Great Big Ideas that takes place in Hamilton the first Monday in October. Find out more at nextgreatbigideas.com. This week's episode was researched and edited by Tisha Fursad. On a final note, 
You can follow me on social at Lab Occupier, and you can email me at jwilson at leonard, that's L-E-N-N-A-R-D, dot com. Thanks so much for listening.